Hey, Hang Up listeners, you're about to hear a preview of this week's episode. The coronavirus pandemic has made it a challenge for us to do this show in a financially sustainable way. Because of that, we're temporarily changing how we do the Hang Up and Listen podcast. Every other week, the full episode will be for Slate Plus members only, with just the first segment available to non-members. If you want to hear every word of every episode we do, you need to subscribe to Slate Plus. It's only $35 for the first year, and your membership will help assure that we can continue doing Hang Up and Listen for a very long time. If you want to subscribe, go to slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. Thanks so much. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of July 13th, 2020. On this week's show, we'll discuss college football conferences scaling back their seasons, Major League Soccer postponing and canceling games, and other sports that are in, shall we say, the bargaining phase of dealing with the pandemic. We'll also look at the case of Bruce Maxwell, the black baseball player who kneeled during the national anthem and is now out of the major leagues. And then, finally, we'll talk to Denver Nuggets guard Troy Daniels, who made news last week by sharing a photo of his first meal inside the NBA's quarantine bubble. I am still, so far as I can tell, here in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen and the host of Slow Burn Season 4. Joining me is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, not yet famous for sharing photos of food, but could happen. Could Depends on what food I decide to share a photo of. <laughs> that is a, a very true statement. With us from Palo Alto, California, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3, Joel Anderson, man uh, who's in possession of many food opinions. I'm hoping that conversation with Troy Daniels is just like a point-by-point analysis of each item that was in that little tray. Yeah, we got to go off that plate. The arugula, the watermelon, the chips. You know, Stacy's chips are good. The pickled red onions. I, you know, I like Stacy's chips, and they were on the plate. I mean, I think the watermelon was looked pretty good, but I mean, that looked like some really withered spinach leaves or whatever the hell that was. We should save this for the show. Yeah, we'll get to that, I suppose. The Ivy League last week became the first Division I conference to cancel all fall sports. First, no Morehouse-Tuskegee football classic. Now, no Harvard-Yale for the first time since World War II. How will we survive? The power schools, meanwhile, are clinging to their football revenue life preservers, but you can already see the fingers starting to slip. The Big Ten and Pac-12 announced that they would play games only within their respective conferences, which prompted a University of Colorado linebacker named Carson Wells to tweet, coronavirus must know the difference between conference and non-conference games. Drop your mic, Carson Wells. Joel, you've been dubious all along that college sports, especially football, will or should be played this fall. Are we moving closer to that inevitability? I think Josh said it right at the top of the show when he said we're in the bargaining phase because it's getting harder and harder to understand how they're going to be able to pull this off. Or at least it's going to be hard to understand their logic for attempting to try this in this climate. So, for instance, we talked about how the Big Ten and the Pac-10 have decided to stick to only conference games this fall. Great. So consider Nebraska and Rutgers are in the same league and they're scheduled to play in mid-October. That's a 1,300-mile road trip probably no shorter than a two-hour flight. How is it safer to play 
that game, Nebraska versus Rutgers, as opposed to Nebraska versus Central Michigan or Nebraska versus South Dakota State or Nebraska versus Cincinnati, is which, you know, the games that were lost when the Big Ten scaled back its schedule or the Pac-12. They're cutting back league games, too. So Arizona State is scheduled to play Washington State at the end of October. And having been to Pullman three times, let me tell you, there's few places in this country that are harder to get to or more remote. Tempe to Pullman is, according to Google Maps, about 1,200 miles. It's not some sort of short plane ride. So explain to me again, how does this make sense when you cut out these non-league games, and but you're still allowing these foot, college football teams to basically fly halfway across the country to play each other? And that's mostly because they're figuring it out as they go, just like the rest of us here in America. There's no indication that anyone with any authority in this country knows what a good, safe response to this virus is that doesn't involve shutting everything down. Can we, before we get too far into this can we just go back to that tweet because it was uh you joel who just your immediate response when uh, i i think it was stefan who sent sent this around to us you were like that is one of the all-time great tweets oh it's fantastic like carson i don't know if you have a career you know in professional football but the the brevity of it, mm-hmm. the clarity of the conceptualization. Coronavirus must know the difference between conference and non-conference games. That's just amazing writing. <laughs> it's a great tweet. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, just perfectly timed. Not yeah. a wasted word. Exactly. Because there was another another linebacker, uh, Isaiah Johnson, who plays for Arizona, also had a good tweet, but it was a lot longer. The NCAA <laughs> and universities want us to play during a global pandemic so they won't lose millions of dollars, but can't slash won't give us money. I'm not asking for 50k but you can't break us off three bands also a really good sentiment and sort of very pointed at the nca but yeah clarity brevity why not ask for 50k by the way too i mean go ahead (laughs) i mean you might as well how about like i'm not asking for 50k but you can't break us off 500 bands right (laughs) exactly (laughs) well i actually have uh, i'm not sure what the answer is to joel's question i mean i have some kind of speculation about why they're keeping it in-house. I mean, is it just to keep all the money in, you know, their their small circle? Is it to push back, you know, get by a little more time? Because conference games are not generally starting in, you know, the, the beginning of September. Stefan, have you seen any kind of explanations or speculation? Well, I think that there are two obvious um, explanations for it. One is that these games draw fewer fans on campus anyway. So the revenue, the gate from these games for the ones they're canceling, you mean? The ones they're canceling. The revenue for those games from gate concessions, et cetera, is going to be lower than conference games. And two, they have to pay the non conference schools a million bucks or so to travel to Nebraska or Ann Arbor or wherever to play these games. So, in tr- as, a, as a revenue proposition, ditching the non conference games is a no brainer. Yeah. And I also think that one. Uh, possible explanation that I saw, and I don't know who to credit it to, is that there's some sense that if they play intra-league, that they could standardize the protocols. Mm-hmm. That there's, it's, they have a much better chance of getting everybody on the Big Ten right. that makes on sense. the same page that as opposed to too, you know, yeah. you know, these non-conference opponents. I mean, the problem also is that for the non-conference opponents, this is a gigantic revenue hit. I mean, those two or three sacrifice games, those sacrificial lamb games that schools play are really important to smaller schools' revenue for the uh, for, for the athletic department. Yeah, it's definitely true. I mean, everybody's trying to preserve their football revenue, no matter what size the school is. And Stanford is um, killing 
was it all like 11 sports? Mm-hmm. That to me was shocking because, you know, we've, we've talked a lot in recent months about college athletic departments and budgets and, and cutting sports, but Stanford has won this director's cup thing for the last 25 years, which, you know, gives schools points for performance across the entire like menu of college athletics. And it's just like kind of part of the school's brand is being good at these Olympic sports. And, you know, their explanation was people think that we have limited money, you know, that we have unlimited resources and money at Stanford. And that's not true. Eh, I don't know if I agree, if I agree with that, but, (laughs) you know, basically if Stanford is doing this, then it's hard to see how every school in the country isn't going to just start slashing. Um, Stanford is basically just given everyone permission. If you're a, a booster or a student or a fan of, you know, some other school, then they're going to tell you, well, Stanford did it. So we're going to do it now too. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm going to push back a little on the whether this is such a bad thing. I mean, Josh Slate has published and others have written stories about how a lot of these sports are affirmative action for underqualified white students. You know, you get on the squash team or on a crew boat um, and you get to go to Stanford where your academic um, performance indicators are much lower than Stanford the rest of the Stanford was also caught body. up in the college admissions scandal. Sailing. Yeah. Right. yeah. Sailing. Yeah. And, and they've got like, you know, the schools that compete for this cup host like 35 to 40 sports. I think Stanford was what, like 33 or 39, some huge number. Uh, Brown, your alma mater, Josh, a few weeks ago announced it was cutting some sports unrelated to COVID, a review that was started before all this happened. They ended up having to reverse course on a couple of sports after pressure from alumni. But there is an argument to be made that maybe this is an opportunity for a genuine reassessment of the mission of universities, even ones that have presumably unlimited resources. Right. And what's the old saying? You don't want to waste a crisis, right? Because it's worth noting that these athletic cuts were the sports that brought in absolutely no revenue and had very little competition. And most of them were funded off the backs of the major revenue sports. So here here at Stanford, and I know a little bit about this because I'm right up the street. Most of those sports that were cut were non-NCAA sponsored championship sports. So for instance, like field hockey, there are only two other division one field hockey teams on the West Coast and none in like you know, five to six, five or six other sports that were cut. So essentially it was Stanford competing against itself. Like they just had these, you know, this bloated athletic budget and they're just like, well, why not cut right now? It makes, you well, know, it makes sense, right? Yeah. yeah. Why not cut right now? And, you know, and there's still going to be club sports, so they'll still compete. Yeah. The flip side is that universities like Stanford can afford to do this. Mm-hmm. And there's an argument to be made that, that school should be sponsoring more non-revenue sports because that's, more in line with what the mission of a university 
should be. Yeah, kind of uh, got a little uh, hyper capitalism action over there from Joel Anderson. Like these sports are yeah. non revenue generating. We got to dump them, get get rid of them. <laughs> well, yeah, that too. But I mean, I guess the thing is, is that if then I'm torn on this because we've talked about this over and over again. The United States is pretty much the only country in the world that attaches athletic programs to the institutions of higher learning, and also. I mean, as long as they fund these non-revenue sports, it makes it impossible to spread out the money to the guys that are actually bringing in money to the athletic department. And so I'm a little I'm a, I'm a little less sympathetic to funding squash teams at the expense of paying for guys like Carson Jones. Yeah, I don't think that those are related though. I think the Well, the, the schools Power want you to think conference, they are. Yeah, they want you to think they are, but the reality is that that that's not how it works. The reason that we're not paying people is that that universities have chosen to take the billions of dollars in revenue from basketball and football and spend it on coaches and buildings and fundraising. So I, I, I wouldn't fall for that trap. But also these universities aren't just their athletic departments. Like there's no reason that football has to pay for these other sports. Like why couldn't Stanford pay for these sports out of something else, out of and out of anything else, like it, it right. doesn't necessarily right. makes it doesn't make and sense. And whoever said that sports had to be revenue generating at a university, we've fallen into this into this trap of believing that in the last forty years, and I think that's a dangerous one. Well, no, that's fair. That's fair. But what again? What I'm saying though is that it strips away another justification. Ultimately, the longer this goes on, the more we strip away the artifice yep. of so-called amateurism. We see sure. that the ex- the excuses are essentially they just don't want to pay them. You know? Yeah. Well, I think, Joel, we can't let them divide us, you know, and by us, I mean, no, I don't know what I, I, I don't actually mean. <laughs> yeah, us. Right. Tell me about the- they, they can't, we can't let them divide the squash players and the football players <laughs> stronger together. Um, Find common cause. That's true. But back to the NCAA and this conference scheduling situation, I think what we've learned here is, is something that we've already knew, but it's reinforced and that is that the NCAA does nothing that you actually would want it to do and everything mm-hmm. that you don't want mm. it to do. Like, this is a situation where if there was a leader or a leadership from, you know, this governing body for for college sports, then, you know, maybe we would have uh, a plan and we would have coordination and we wouldn't just have these conferences, you know, being out for themselves and and kind of not having any sort of unified anything. But in, in circumstances like this, we just say, oh, the NCAA is just like, you know, it, it's only the schools. Like the, the NCAA is just serves at the, the pleasure of these institutions. But like, you know, the NCAA actually like comes out in full force when, um, you know, somebody uh, has a bagel that they're not, they're not supposed to have. Then they, then they actually are, you know, enforcing the shit out of everything. So they can only enforce things that don't matter is the point. Well, the, the obvious parallel here in the COVID crisis is that the NCAA is the federal government, is the White House. Mm-hmm. Hey, leave it up to the states. Leave it up to the conferences. We don't want to deliver any sort of universal guidelines. Every situation is different. How can the Pac-10 and the Big Ten possibly, and the Patriot League, how can they possibly operate under Pac-12 the same Stephen, guidelines? Get with, get, get with the 21st century. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. And they were the Pac-10 Pac-8. when I was a kid. The Pac-8, so, Pac- Pac- yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah Pac-8. Pac-8. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but how can we possibly impose some sort of set of standards, except as you say, Josh, you know, if it comes to, you know, our, our, our business provisions, oh, and 
our need to prevent students from deriving any source of income anywhere, well, then we need to 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 have a a, a universal message from the university presidents. Give me a break. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, we've talked a lot about money here, and I just want to kind of circle back around to what has been my overall point for the last few months, is that we're talking about a safety issue. Mm -hmm. The players, particularly in college football, are a majority Black workforce that are being forced back to work in the middle of a pandemic, while we're not even sure if they should be on campus right now. And I, you know, I, I read at least two stories one from the University of Texas, one from the University of North Carolina that talked about how cleaning staff had become infected with COVID and at least one person at each of those schools had died as a result of catching COVID. And so it's not it, like, not only is it dangerous for the players to be on campus right now, it's dangerous for anybody else. A student from Penn State died recently who was at in-state college, yeah, not an athlete. Yeah, right. And we just cannot, we like, we cannot continue to think about this in terms of, well, man, we might miss football or, you know, how is this going to affect the bottom line of these college athletic departments? Because we're also talking about a health crisis and there's nobody, like, that's the thing, Josh, you talked about the NCAA, that there's no, you know, the, this is where the NCAA should be able to come in and say, hey, guys, we're going to shut this down for the fall. But college football doesn't have to explain shit to anybody. There's no regulatory agency, no governing authority that can bring everyone together and force some sort of clarity among all of these colleges. And it's, I mean, it's, it's I mean, it's morally repugnant. I mean, to be honest, you know, to, to put these guys at risk just for entertainment, just to keep the money going. It's just really disgusting. And, um, you know, the further we get along with this, you just, you, you, you come to see that there are no guardrails, that there's nobody, nobody is going to come to save us but the people that have a financial stake in this. And the John Branch and the New York Times did had a good piece that really summarized uh, that was a good synopsis of a lot of these issues. And I think the the main point that I took away from it that he makes is that the big schools are asking how to play instead of why to play. Mm -hmm. And they're going to get to the point that they're going to be asked, why are you doing this? They're just not there now. Um, though, to maybe segue to some professional sports, since you tease that in the intro, Josh, they're going to find justification in Major League Soccer and the NBA and the WNBA and the other professional sports leagues that are trying to pull this off, even though those startups have been beset, some of those startups have been beset by some some health problems too. Yeah, I mean, Major League Soccer has been postponing, delaying games. So, you know, it's it's back to, as it always is, it's back to Carson Jones's tweet, uh, coronavirus actually does not care. Um, if you are, if you're playing a regular season game versus an <laughs> exhibition game versus a scrimmage versus a, a practice. And I think the MLS restart is an example of kind of what we're going to be in for. And I don't know about you guys, but it's felt to me like the restart of sports. And maybe it's because I don't follow club soccer in the U S as closely as I do other sports, but like stuff is starting, like it, it's kind of creeped up on me. Like Baseball is starting in like a week and a half. Like the NBA is going to be in, I guess, a little less than three weeks now. Like I, it just feels like I like blinked for a second and all these sports are, are coming back and it just feels crazy, a little bit uh, what, weird. What's, what's changed? I mean, actually, what has changed since sports stopped in March? 
it's gotten worse. It's gotten worse. And now we're saying, okay, we're, we're still going to thug our way through this. We're still going to play. Well, look, like, it if just... it's gotten worse than sports stopped, then it'll get better when sports starts again. Like, clearly, that's science. <laughs> the, other thing, the other thing I was thinking is that um, maybe there's been some CDC guidance that coronavirus will die if a strength coach yells at it. So maybe that's what we're in for in the fall. That was a preview of this week's episode of Hang Up and Listen. To hear the whole thing, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. It's only $35 for the first year, and your membership will help sustain our show. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. Thanks very much. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.